And in fact, right now, I think what we see is that very often automation does change the nature of work. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that the work is restructured to where people have massive amounts of additional time. I think what we find is the human workers are moved from certain kinds of work that automation can do to other kinds of work that is best done in combination with automation. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please tell a friend, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact. This comes to us from the Harvard Business Review, in which Thomas H. Davenport and Julia Kirby write about the fact that AI won't replace humans, but humans with AI will replace humans without AI. A theme that uh, we've covered frequently on this show, and uh, not too much news here, but worth summarizing nonetheless. AI can't yet replicate human creativity, critical thinking, and empathy. As a result, humans will be needed to oversee AI systems to provide guidance and direction and to solve problems that AI cannot handle on its own. Thomas Davenport and Julia Kirby go on to say, humans and AI will work together to create new products and services to solve problems and to make better decisions. Those who embrace AI and learn to work with it will be the ones who succeed in the future. Again, common themes, but uh, at least in the popular press or in HBR, maybe they haven't been covered as uh, in as much depth as we've covered them on this podcast. As always, we will link to the full article in today's show notes. Now, shifting to this week's conversation, Dr. John Boudreau is a luminary in the future of work academic community. He's published more than 50 books and articles. His scholarly research is published in Management Science the Academy of Management Executives, the Journal of Applied Psychology, and Personnel Psychology. Features on Dr. John's work have appeared in the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Fast Company, and Business Week, among others. Dr. Boudreau helped establish and then directed the Center for Advanced Human Resource Studies at Cornell, where he was a professor for over 20 years before his current position as research director for the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California. And without further ado, John, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share a bit more about your background and how you got into this space. Well, thank you, Dan. Actually, I'll update your bio a little. I'm now semi-retired from USC, so I've retired my professorship as of 2019, and I remain affiliated with the Center for Effective Organizations now as a senior research scientist. And I'll give a little bit of a plug for the Center for Effective Organizations, encourage folks to look that up. Now, I'm speaking to you from my office in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which I know you know well. Um, that kind of gets us into the background. I actually grew up just south of here in a town called Las Cruces, where I went to all of my schooling right through college and became fascinated in the 70s, which to folks like you must look seem like a million years ago. Uh, uh, that was when you carried Hollerith cards to the computer if you wanted to get something done. 
Um, and uh, anyway, in the 70s, I got very fascinated by this stuff called the Japanese management system, empowering frontline workers, et cetera. That got me talking to mentors there, really good mentors who said, well, there's this thing emerging area called human resources, and it's it might be the area you want to be a professor in. And they, they had a nice quote, being good in school doesn't predict much, but it tends to predict being pretty good at being a professor. So off I went to Purdue, got my uh, master's degree first, my MBA, and then carried that into my PhD program in this new thing called human resources, which there was a mix of economics, labor economics, even marketing, as well as the traditional disciplines of psychology. Then off to Cornell, another set of amazing mentors, a wonderful platform, lots of big companies recruiting for people who wanted to be the next head of HR. So that's what I was teaching there, including in the 80s, this new class called Personal Computers in HR, where the head of HR at IBM donated a room full of these P things called PCs with these things called floppy drives that you had to stick in there to even start it up. And I had students much smarter than me developing applications in spreadsheet programs like Lotus123 and database programs like DBase. So that was kind of my initial foray into automation and work. Um, and then uh, after 22 years there, with the, with the privilege of helping to start and then direct the Center for Advanced Human Resource Studies, Ed Lawler at, at uh, University of Southern California uh, was kind enough to offer me a position there. And that's where I wasn't until 2019. That frontline worker thing is prominent for me. Uh, I had an admiral in the Navy over a beer as I was teaching naval commanders asked me, what got you into this field? After I had called my father to say, hey, you were on a Navy ship when you learned your electronics technician work that got you into IBM. And uh, I said, you know, I hadn't thought about it, Phil, but I remember my father and his teams going out to dismantle room size computers, those big computers in black and white that you see with big tape drives and lights flashing everywhere. Well, it turns out the walls, ceilings and floors of those things come, out, come off and they're filled with wires. And my dad and his team went through there with wire testers to try and find what they called the bug in the machine that caused it not to work. And they'd often work through the night uh, and I remember asking my dad if he loved his job, and he said, I just love IBM. It's terrific, super benefits, super good for you kids. I just, one thing I wish is that my supervisor could take us out to dinner after a job like this, because it's authorized to take the sales team out to dinner when they beat their quota, but it's just not in the rules that we can go out to dinner with our wives and celebrate. And that always was on my mind as I do my own work, thinking maybe something I say or do or some organization I work with somewhere out there, I'll have made a humble contribution to making work better for someone like my dad. So despite the fact that this podcast is AI and the future of work, this is a question that I rarely get to ask. What is work and how has it changed <laughs> over the years? It's a good question. I think, and obviously lots of definitions, and you've had some very good uh, podcast speakers that have touched on this. I was just listening to your podcast with Mark McCrindle, uh, and he noted the aspirational idea that we might think of work as not just the endeavors we do for pay, but also the, the broad set of endeavors like volunteering, family time, et cetera, that are work, but not necessarily a transaction for money or employment. 
Uh, that's a that's a, an aspirational view. I hope it comes out. Uh, you know, we I, I think in my own work, I've sort of moved and written a lot about shifting the idea of work from a job, regular full time employment. I still wince whenever I hear really smart policymakers around the world talk about creating good jobs. Uh, because I think that removes a lot of options for work that isn't a job, even work that pays. Um, so, so that would be one thing to uh, think about engagement between those who have work to offer and those who need work done. And I do like that idea of a holistic definition of work as all of the endeavors that offer us rewards, which could include non-paid caregiving, even hobbies like gardening, music, time with family, etc. With that definition, I think we do open up the possibility of policymakers, workers, leaders, companies taking a more holistic view of what we mean by work and how all of those different kinds of work might mix together. You're speaking to a large audience of entrepreneurs and leaders. I'm curious to get your perspective. What does the science of work say about the best way to build high-functioning teams? Well, that's a very big question. I think the, the main observation I'd probably bring to those in the audience on this, and, and it's something I run into with all with all terrific respect and meaning, uh, meaning no disrespect or anything about the entrepreneurs I work with, but the idea of a high-functioning team is an idea that has existed at least for, gosh, probably 100 years now. It's been deeply researched at least since the 70s. So there is, there is decades and decades of scholarly research on this idea of teams and how they work together and how, they, uh, how, to, how to make them more effective that I find is often unknown uh, to a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to. Um, again, there's terrific work going on among the entrepreneurs, but I must say it's not unusual for me to encounter an organization that says, you know, we'd like you to advise us and we're the first ones ever to think about nudging leaders with uh, with insights about how to improve the work of a team member, improve team cohesion, et cetera. And we believe we're the first ones ever to measure that, first ones ever to provide some kind of nudges on that. And uh, I must say, I chuckle a little bit and generally help them to have a look at some of the research that's been done that may help them to understand what's already been built and doesn't necessarily need rebuilding. There's terrific people doing this work uh, John Hollenbeck and his colleagues uh, at, at Michigan State University, Eduardo Salas, who just won an award for, for uh, impact in research, Rob Cross on organization social networks, and his colleagues like Greg Pryor and Michael Arena. Uh, and there's a lot there that people don't often don't often capture. Uh, you know, I remember Hollenbeck and his team wrote an article about the myths of team building that I uh, talked about in a 2004 blog, uh, things, myths like technical abilities are the most important attribute. Uh, no, social abilities can often be most important. The best way to measure a team is based on its average capability. No, teams are configurable. Depending on what they're working on, it may be good enough to have a really good star. And then the rest of them can be honestly kind of mediocre, just depends. Diversity in teams is essential to high performance. No, absolutely not. Indeed, for some things, a non-diverse team is the best way to get something done quickly and, and efficiently because they know each other and they have similar backgrounds, similar mindsets, et cetera. Diversity can improve things about teams, but it's, it's work and leaders need to know they're going to need to make investments to get through some of the things that diversity creates, some of the difficulties it creates. So I guess I'd say 
you know, there's, it's certainly, I'm certainly not the expert on high functioning teams, Dan, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that are really smart about it. And I think I just put in a plug to have the folks listening, give a thought to maybe doing a quick Google Scholar search on high performing teams. I bet they'd be surprised at what they find and how long it's been studied. As prep for this discussion, I read your excellent book, Work Without Jobs. And one of the concepts that was novel that you introduced is this idea of a work operating system. Mm -hmm. I'd love for the audience to hear from you. What is that? And, and why is it different from what traditional jobs look like? Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about that book and to bring everyone's attention to my co-author, Robin J. Suthasen. And you can find his name if you just look up the Work Without Jobs book. The title is Work Without Jobs. Robin and I have written about five books together, I believe, uh, including one uh, on uh, automation uh, about oh seven or eight years ago called Reinventing Jobs that uh, that agreed very much with Tom Davenport and uh, Julie Kirby, who you quoted today that the future is about combinations of humans and work and rather or humans and automation excuse me rather than automation neatly replacing jobs uh, and indeed work without jobs kind of evolves from that what Robin and I found we wrote a book about non-employment work arrangements gig workers etc with David Creelman which I'll give credit to both for his own work people should look him up and for introducing you to me and what we found is that when you start talking about alternative work arrangements, like freelancers, contractors, volunteers, crowdsourcing, et cetera, and then when you talk about work automation, you, you realize that step one is you need to deconstruct or melt traditional jobs. Uh, you know, uh, workers who are engaged in non-employment ways sometimes do a whole job, but more often they do a part of a job, a task, a project, a gig. And so in order to see the pattern, you've got to think about work as the pieces of a job and what pieces might be done by an alternative worker. And then how might we put those pieces back together now that an alternative type of worker is doing some of those tasks? Well, it's the same thing with automation. We need to take the jobs apart. We need to look at the task level or the project level and ask ourselves, what is the likely effect of automation here? What are we trying to get done with automation at the task level? And then you can see that pattern and put the work back together as a combination of humans and automation. So work without jobs does not mean we're going to dissolve all jobs tomorrow, but it does mean that very often in places where leaders and organizations have dilemmas about the work, like evolving automation, like the existence of alternative ways to engage workers beyond employment, like the need to have agility and move quickly. In those situations, I call them the edges, it is often really helpful to allow leaders and workers the freedom to think outside the jobs in a metaphorical way to snip apart those elements of a job description if it was on paper, to put all the job descriptions together on a table and then start asking, how would we regroup these? How would automation be used to take some of them? How might we regroup others of them into teamwork or into a pool of labor, something like that? Uh, how might we do some of this work with alternative types of workers who aren't necessarily going to be regular full-time employees. So that's the idea there was that 
most operating systems in organizations are built on jobs, are built on this synonymous idea that a job equals work. When organizations do workforce planning, it's generally about jobs. It's generally about job holders who will hold a regular full-time job. And it's generally about qualifications like degrees, all of them zero one, right? You are in a job or you're not. You hold a job or you don't and you have a degree or you don't. That's how economists measure labor shortages. What Robin and I suggested, just like the operating systems in computers, used to do one task at a time and then turn to the next one. Today's operating systems, there's still only one operating system in your computer. There's still only one processor in your computer, but it's been divided into nanoseconds and allowed to prioritize the work so that it appears to be doing many things at once. That kind of deconstruction of jobs, job holders, and degrees leads to a system that would look more at tasks and projects for the work, at the full capability set for a worker, and at, at qualifications or experiences to measure learning and, and, uh, and uh, work readiness rather than just degrees. And it's that work operating system that we described in the book. There's a new kind of variable that enters that kind of fluid definition of work that you just explained. And that's occurring right now where increasingly your colleague may be a bot. And in that world where your colleague, the bot, is doing a lot of tasks as a co-pilot that might previously have been reserved for humans, how does that change our relationship with work? And how does that change the definition of what a job is? So I so so that's a really good question and an interesting way to set it up is what if you had a bot as a co-pilot? I like that metaphor. I also love your metaphor of fluid work. Often the way I describe the new operating system Robin and I wrote about is that you can think about jobs as an ice cube, job holders as an ice cube, and degrees as an ice cube. That the typical square thing that we think of as an ice cube. And then you can think about that melting. So fluidity is really key. And all those droplets that are now freed from the ice cube could be reconfigured in lots of different ways. Maybe we do refreeze them back into a job, but maybe we let them fluidly move across people. And maybe, as I said, maybe we get that done with automation. So I like the idea of co-pilot. A couple of metaphors come to mind that I like to use when I work with organizations and when I speak. One of them, and these came about probably five to seven years ago, again, when Robin and I were writing about um, work automation, but I think they're, you know, they're, they're even amplified now. One of them was uh, a video that I liked that reported on a, a Los Angeles songwriter who became quite famous by using AI as her co-pilot. So she would begin a melody and AI would tell her others that have begun this melody tend to continue like this. And by the way, here's the chord structure that usually goes with a melody like this. And so it's actually suggesting notes, it's suggesting chord structures to her as she writes her song. And as she put it in the video, uh, AI is more of a partner than a tool. A piano or a guitar is a tool. It doesn't really suggest anything to me, whereas AI is more of a partner. And I love the end of the video where she, where she and the, the interviewer say, it can't write songs for now. And they giggle, but they giggle rather 
uh, rather, you know, self-consciously and with a little trepidation. And sure enough, here comes generative AI, right, which is now a, an amplified kind of co-pilot for that. So the idea of the future of work, and I think you, you, your fun fact really touched on it, the future of work being a combination of humans and automation, an ever-evolving one. I like to think of work as perpetually upgraded, just like your phone, just like your computer, just like your automobile, perpetually upgraded every day. Every day, automation will be able to do a little bit more of what each of us does. Alternative work arrangements that will be available for a little bit more of what each of us does. Most of the time, it won't affect us much, but there will be those watershed moments where we have to change how we behave, how we interact, just like you do with your phone or your, or your computer, et cetera. So co-pilots is really interesting. Another metaphor is, I like to think of it as a future skill is going to be how you you collaborate with automation and how aware and ready you are to perpetually upgrade in response to how automation works. There's a thing called Centaur Chess that I also found out about years ago writing that book. Since Centaur Chess, the chess player brings their AI uh, advisor, their, their, their uh, AI chess player. And in, in that game, the, the chess masters tend not to play as well because they don't rely on the AI enough. The novices tend not to play as well because they rely on the AI too much. It's those people that are in the middle that have learned to, in a way, surf and collaborate with the AI, to take its suggestions when it makes sense and to reject them when it doesn't, that do the best at Centaur Chess. I think a lot of work is going to look like that, that the successful folks will be the ones that learn how to collaborate and work with AI as a partner. Those are great examples. And I'll make sure we share links in the show notes to the references that you made, particularly the songwriter. Very, very interesting. I'll be happy to send you that. Yeah, really an interesting one. Yeah. Now, we're entering a generation where potentially automation can give every employee back maybe a half a day to a day per week. Um, and that's both a threat and, and an opportunity because the notion of call it whatever you want, the eight hour workday, et cetera, it's so ingrained in how we structure jobs and build organizations and, and create the economy that uh, I often wonder if we're prepared for a world where you get call it, you know, 20 to 25% of your time back, like not, not just, you know, in terms of productivity, you know, being able to do the same, provide this, produce the same amount of output in less time, but just in terms of how work defines our identity, what's it going to take as kind of a species for us to rethink who we are when all of a sudden we've got a bunch of time back to be different versions of ourselves? That's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, first interesting prediction and, a, and a interesting meaning truly interesting here. If you look at the history of automation, while automation has tended to make work uh, more efficient, again, the productivity numbers suggest that productivity levels are lagging what most people would have predicted with the automation advances that we've seen certainly in recently since the 90s and 2000s. 
So on the one hand, and some of the data suggests that even with the kinds of automation and productivity enhancements that we've seen during the rise of Silicon Valley, et cetera, that it hasn't really been as much as one might have predicted. So on the one hand, there may be plenty of work for folks, I guess I'm saying. And in fact, right now, I think what we see is that very often automation does change the nature of work. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that the work is restructured to where people have massive amounts of additional time. I think what we find is the human workers are moved from certain kinds of work that automation can do to other kinds of work that is best done in combination with automation. Uh, so on the one hand, the prediction is a good one. It's a logical one. And I think it still remains to be seen whether these the productivity of the human worker begins to reflect some of the automation. Uh, a good a good story is bank tellers. And, uh, you know, a, a study that I uh, quoted in the book, Reinventing Jobs, and that I like, shows that, that even though when teller machines were introduced, literally bank tellers in England poured honey in them. They were outside. The bank tellers would sneak outside and pour honey on the keyboard. They were so afraid of losing their jobs to this new kind of automation. Well, as it's evolved, the graph is really quite stunning. The rise of teller machines actually is accompanied by a rise in employment of bank tellers. Now, why is that? Well, it's due to a number of things, but one of the, one of the explanations is that with automation, you didn't need as many tellers per bank branch. And so it became less expensive to open bank branches and the economics uh, led to organizations opening more bank branches proportionally than the amount of time that was saved with tellers. So there were lots, lots of tellers employed doing different kinds of work, to be sure, uh, in these bank branches that now have these ATM machines. Uh, and so I think there is, I think we may see that the, that the work changes, but doesn't necessarily decrease. Now, again, the hope would be that we get back some of that time. I think COVID accelerated both the power and the awareness of workers and leaders about how many variations of work there are. We certainly see experiments with a four-day work week. Um, and all of that may be, may be enhanced and supported by the evolution of, of automation. What do we do with all that extra time? Again, I think um, uh, you know, th this idea of a holistic concept of work, of, of uh, work is all of the endeavors that we do that bring us rewards. I think that kind of a, uh, that kind of conception of work, both on the part of the workers, but also on the part of society and even organizations may also be a necessary element to thinking creatively about how all of these things combine. Uh, and honestly, about how some capabilities that people might consider a hobby may become relevant to the paid work that they do. I'll give you one more example. Uh, when Robin and I were writing the book about um, alternative work arrangements, we encountered early versions of what today are called internal talent marketplaces, uh, a platform where people can find projects that they can volunteer for inside their company. Uh, and of course, these are now everywhere, uh, you know, organizations like Gloat and Eightfold and most of the platforms in HR, most of the learning companies in HR are putting together these platforms. An early example at Disney, when they were they were building their own, because it was pre all of all of these startups, was that they had a task, a project of doing a voiceover for a trailer for a Disney production. And they had this 
platform where they could put projects on it. So they did. They said, does anyone want to volunteer? And my HR colleagues at Disney said, someone who was a finance professional volunteered and said, I think I'd be good for the voiceover. And sure enough, they were. So here's this person with a finance job in Disney who's gotten the opportunity to take this thing that is, you know, a hobby of theirs or an attribute of theirs that's fun and got to do the voiceover as a volunteer project at Disney through this talent marketplace. So it's very interesting that we may see, uh, again, most of these talent marketplaces are voluntary right now. Leaders voluntarily post projects, workers voluntarily take them. They're often separate from the pay systems, et cetera, although that's changing. And we may be seeing then that there is this available uh, available pool of very willing people who would find it fun to take on projects, even at the workplace, even as volunteers. So the, the, the mind boggles at the options we have once we begin to allow work to be deconstructed, to see work as combinations of automation and humans, et cetera. Everyone's got to rewind the tape a couple minutes and, and re-listen to that explanation of the future of work that was very, <laughs> very thoughtful. And it recalled two interesting guests we've had on the podcast a while ago, both of them. One is a gentleman named Brian Tolliby, who's the CEO of company called Ahura. And uh, another one is a gentleman named Kamal Alawalia, who was the president at the time of Eightfold. And we had this very interesting conversation, both interesting conversations about talent marketplaces and the idea of reskilling and upskilling. But, mm -hmm. but as, as with the tone of your comments, not in a dystopian way, in a way that you know creates opportunity I love that example of Disney and the, you know, the finance professional doing the voiceover, like <laughs> talk about a, just a brilliant way to untap or to unlock, you know, the, the, the hidden potential <laughs> that exists in the organization. Like it's such a great way to describe what we'll do with this productivity dividend. Uh, so Indeed. thank you very much for sharing those examples. You're very welcome, Dan. I, I'm reminded of a, a gentleman I, I, I've worked with in one of the mining and extraction companies. And um, he was asked by his CEO to come back with a definition and a vision of the future of work for their company. And uh, he came back with, you know, what he would say, I think, was a pretty standard one, a good one based on, you know, latest thinking, et cetera, but kind of work as employment, et cetera. And the CEO said, that's not what I'm looking for. I want something bigger and more visionary. And that led them on a quest to think about, think about their presence in a country as a mining and extraction company. And instead of thinking about their employment as a license to operate, they started thinking about work as a societal resource. And they began to ask themselves, will we leave this society better because we've been here? Uh, my colleague, Dean Carter, talks about regenerative HR, just like regenerative agriculture, meaning that in regenerative agriculture, it often doesn't involve plowing up and fertilizing the land, but rather finding ways to have the land regenerate itself through the process of agriculture. And Dean, very astutely, has talked about the idea of regenerative work or regenerative, he calls it regenerative HR, human resources, but regenerative work relationships, where we ask ourselves, are the workers better? Are we creating work that allows them to regenerate? And so it occurs to me, Dan, that you could think about all the things that workers do, caregiving for their family, uh, hobbies, et cetera, as 
a domain of work that that could be the um, how shall I put it? The domain could be the the focus of the organization and the worker, not just traditional employment. So that the organization might say, "We want to open up and encompass these other things that you do. We want to regenerate you, so that yes, in the end, you're a better worker for us, but also as a societal contribution. We see our contribution as creating great work and great workers." Unbelievably, we're about out of time, but uh, yep. not getting off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. Here we've been discussing kind of the the ingenuity of, of humans and the relationship between people mm-hmm. and their work, and yet we also sit on on the precipice of increasing automation and smarter AI, and you know, as we've been discussing, the potential for AI to do some innately human tasks or ones that we thought mm-hmm. were. In- human. I'd love to get your perspective. Will there ever be a time when AI could replace the work of Dr. John? (laughs) Could a bot ever replace me? Well, let me say at the outset that um, I would not suggest that replacing John Boudreau be taken on as a project for all those wonderful minds in the world of the advances of HI. Seems like a pretty boring one to me and probably pretty simple, honestly, at the end of the day. Uh, to automate a lot of the things that I do. Uh, Of course, uh, as so many of your guests have pointed out, Dan, lots of things that I do can be automated, um, often indeed, not just the dirty, dull, and and dangerous stuff, but the stuff that I like to do. Uh, You know, I don't mind going out and finding research and et cetera, summarizing that research. A lot of that is getting pretty close to being done by bots. And in fact, I've had interviewers prepare for an interview by asking a uh, a general uh, language model uh, to reply like John Boudreaux would to these questions. Uh, and, and there's enough of my writing out there that they can find it, et cetera. Um, you know, they're, they're not automatable in terms of some of the creativity, I would hope. They don't tend to pick up new ideas. They don't tend to make some of the connections that I try to make. And then, of course, there's all that work that people don't see in my professional world, my relationships with my daughter, my sisters, my wife, my grandson, uh, all of that might be uploaded someday into some kind of a consciousness. But at the moment, there isn't a bot that can play with my grandson. And I've got to say, I'm pretty thankful for that. So there might be a synthetic version of John Boudreau that outlives the carbon version, but you know, I've lived yeah. that life in order for the synthetic <laughs> version to live on. Right. I, yeah. I'm trying to be as interesting as I can while I'm here so that when I get uploaded, it's uh, it's something interesting uh, for my for people to interact with. I guess that would be one way to put my own relationship to the possibility of being uploaded. Well, I think uh, as we delve into the realm of philosophy and uh, certainly uh, you know the, what it means to be sentient, I think we might have to pause there and have you come back for another version of this next time. How does that sound? <laughs> That's fine. You know, and of course, we can always explore whether I can just send my bot. So hopefully, hopefully Perhaps. we'll do it uh, person to person. It's hard to book the real John, then I'll, uh, That's right. exactly. I'll book the synthetic one. <laughs> it has been a lot of fun. I really uh, always enjoy our conversations. And thank you for mentioning common friend David Krillman, who, uh, who introduced us, who I know is listening to the show. Thank you, David. Uh, and uh, gosh, that's a wrap for this week on AI and the Future of Work. Please continue your learning about this was just a little teaser into the mind of John Boudreaux, but uh, you can find him on social channels, lots of amazing content that he's he's produced. 
And as always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from AI and the Future of Work. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>